We don't have any fans. Boom! boom. Oh my gosh, that that was live, Justin. How dare you? We are live. It is the In the Tank podcast. Along with ESG, DEI has become a popular acronym amongst the woke and culturally enlightened Americans. DEI, of course, stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. inclusion. Oh my goodness. However, it seems like the shine is coming off this progressive ideal as some businesses and influential people like Elon Musk are challenging this program. Is this just part of a national conversation about DEI or is DEI really on the ropes? We're going to be talking about this and more on episode 431 of the In The Tank podcast. Welcome to the In The Tank Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Joining me, I've got the full crew. I've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today? Good, sir. Yeah, just okay. Yeah, I, di- I didn't sleep really well last night. I actually had a nightmare that uh, woke me up in the middle of the night, kept me up for about 90 minutes. Uh, I had a nightmare that uh, Chris Christie had dropped out of the Republican oh, no. uh, race. And then no. uh, I discovered, no, that wasn't a nightmare. That was actually the truth that's what happened and i just have to say chris christie getting out of the race is a heavy heavy loss oh my gosh yes that is going to be a that's a weight on all of our shoulders uh justin haskins director of the socialism research center how are you taking this awful awful news um you know this the usual drugs alcohol therapy (laughs) Um, the, the trifecta I'm working, I'm working on, I'm still working my way through it. I haven't quite accepted it yet. Technically mm-hmm. he isn't totally out of the race. It's just suspended. Oh, so, it's, it's hard hope, to wrap your, you it's hard, alive, guys. It's hard to wrap your arms around this news. I I, I would say impossible. One might say <laughs> Stalgo, editorial director of the Heartland Institute. How are you taking this? I uh, put the big, big grain of salt. You know, I, I, I guess, you know, it's good for the remaining candidates, but I do think that uh, Chris Christie uh, would have made a great president. Just kidding. Yeah, a, a grain of salt and a dollop of butter. That is the only way we can get through this thing, I think. But Donnie, uh, I have a question. How are you taking this? Uh, you know, I, I, am see, I worry about everyone else. So I immediately mm-hmm. reached out to all of those people that I know that deeply affected by this news. Uh, it took me all of one minute to do that. Uh, so, you know, that's that's what I prioritize is other people's feelings when it comes to this stuff. So, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through it together, everybody. Just, you know, we'll stay strong for the next hour. We'll try to keep everybody's spirits up. But I know this is heartbreaking news. Uh, maybe they should just Donnie, call off the election. Donnie, Donnie and Chris Christie are both Italians. Did you guys know that they have that in common? So that's pretty good. Not full Italians, but neither of them are full Italians. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. I'm not like uh uh Cuomo, like handsy no. Italian. I'm just 
right. No. All right. Before we get into, no. before we get into it, uh, audio only listeners that are catching this show, Jim disapproves. That are catching this show on probably oh, wow. a Friday or later. You could join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon Central Time. We were live streaming this on Facebook and YouTube and X and Rumble and all of that. And you could join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. We will see. Super chat functionality is enabled if you want to support the show that way. Otherwise, you can just hit that like button, share this content if you see fit. Subscribe if you haven't already, or just leaving a comment under the video. All helps break through those big tech algorithms and prevent content like this from being shown to more people. But yes, Chris Christie is out. Surely the election is just thrown. We don't even know what's going to happen anymore. We all thought... We all thought we knew that Trump was going to run away with the nomination. But now that Chris Christie's out, oh, my gosh, we have to reassess everything. And what a better time to do it than here on this Thursday, just a couple of days away from the Iowa caucus, which is Monday. Justin, back when we were just young uh, interns at the Heartland Institute, you told Mm -hmm. me that election season was your favorite season of the year or of the period of time whatever but yeah, uh so how excited year, yeah. how excited are you uh honestly i didn't even know that it was happening i've lost i've lost i've just lost all interest in you've, lo- it. you've and, lost and you, that loving feeling well i mean the thing is it used to matter i, I think more to me because it was an opportunity for people to debate issues you know policies and and yeah, there were personal tax and stuff like that. Always. That was, that was part of it, but there was at least some discussion of public policy and issues and debating what ideas would work or not work. You know, like everybody here remembers when Obamacare was like the do or die most important topic in the news for, for, for like at least a year. And, and really more than that, it, people were so, um, upset and worried about Obamacare on the right, that that was like one of the main things that sparked the whole tea party movement. Like that was a big part of it was Obamacare. And now Obamacare seems like, I mean, could you think of a more boring thing to talk about? Like it just, it just doesn't even seem like a a thing. Like, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter uh, in the national stage. It doesn't Mm. matter in the media. It, It just doesn't mean anything because public policy is shifted um to being not about policy it's now just about personalities and you know and and culture wars and stuff and it's just not so i just don't enjoy it as much as i used to because i think it used to be more about what's actually matters yeah which which i and i think the policy is what actually impacts people not people's personalities yeah go back to 2010 i want to i just want to know what the next i mean that was 2010 was 2010 was actually was fun in a lot of ways but look, um, you mentioned Chris Christie. You jokingly mentioned that, you know, this doesn't wait, really wait, matter. wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. I'll bring that up. You you back All off right. of that story. I'll bring that I'm up. Back um, so Iowa caucus starts Monday. I don't think anyone suspects that Trump is going to lose that. Speak now. OK, good. Yeah, I didn't think so. According to the 538 polls, uh, Trump is running away with Iowa. Uh, 52%. This is their aggregate. This is as of yesterday when I looked it up. 52% sitting at the top of the polls, far beyond second place, which is DeSantis at 17%, tied with Nikki Haley at 17%. Ramaswamy with 
6% and Chris Christie with, I think, 3.4%, if I wrote that down correctly. So, Jim, when it comes to the actual caucus, do you think uh, Trump walks away with more or less than 52% of the vote? Oh, I don't know. Uh, let's say less. I, I would take the under on that just because I think that seems a little high. But okay. what I actually, and I've said every time we talk about, and I'm with Justin, it's like, you know, I, I've hardly been following this stuff. And I had forgotten that there was a debate last night. And then I learned it was on CNN. So I said, well, I don't have cable. And even when I did have cable, I wasn't watching CNN. I'll let Chris watch it. Chris can watch it. He can enjoy himself. I'm not going to watch that. But what we're going to find out, what I've said before is like, we can stop talking about polls and we can see actual results. We can see what the uh, Republican electorate wants to do and what candidate they want to run against Joe Biden or candidate B. And we're going to find out. And we're also going to find out that uh, if, whether Donald Trump is a genius politically or, uh, or if he's made an enormous mistake. Now, the polls show that he's a genius because he has decided basically to not participate in the Republican primary with the rest of the candidates. I mean, it's we've never seen anything like this. I'm not going to go to the debates. Uh, I'll have my own rallies. Um, I'll entice some of the networks to do a town hall with me where I'm the star and I get to talk about stuff. Uh, that's never been tried. Um, anybody, you don't, normally, if you don't participate in the process, you don't get any votes. But this is going to be completely different. So that's the only really thing, I, the, the thing I'm only really curious about is um, how effective that strategy is going to be. And if you want to believe the polls, it's going to be a, an enormously winning strategy. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, hey, well, hey, Donnie, can I just comment real quick on that? I think one of, uh, Jim, I think the reason why uh, Donald Trump is uh, choosing not to participate in the debates is because this is one of the first times in more than a century that a former president is running again for office. So this is not exactly something that happens all that often. Usually you've got a whole bunch of candidates that are running for the first time, but this mm. is a very, very different year. And, mm. you know, I think it's just, I think that like all bets are off for this election. It's like a pseudo incumbent candidate. Yeah, exactly. You know, only one other, one other president has been elected after, you know, uh, Grover Cleveland. Yes. Am I right? Yes. Nailed it. History. A plus over here. Uh, so Chris and uh, and this kind of ties into what I think Justin was going with the Chris Christie thing. Chris and I were talking yesterday uh, about if you know because I think everyone, most people, think that it, this is just Trump's to win. And you know, usually when we're talking about candidates or whatever commentators, political analysts are talking about candidates, they always talk about their pathway to victory. And I think with Trump, it'd be interesting to talk about: is there a pathway to defeat? And we were talking about this and, and you know, I, I'm going to pose this as just, you know, a hypothetical. And I'm curious of, you, of your uh, of your thoughts on this. I'll go to you first, Justin. But I think there could be not that I'm rooting for this. Uh, I got my little Trump right here. You know, it's a testament to my, my support of the guy. But if your there life. is a pathway to defeat, um, I think it looks like this. Uh, Iowa happens and he wins. I don't think he's going to lose that. But he wins by a lot closer a margin than uh this this like 30 point uh, uh spread that we're seeing in, in the polls and then new hampshire which is like a week later i think seven days later eight days later something like that uh which the polling on on new hampshire is a lot closer donald trump is at 42 percent. this is the 538 aggregate poll 42 percent. nikki haley at 30 percent. so only a 12 point spread there 
Chris Christie in third with 11%. Now, where does that 11% go if it's not going to Chris Christie? Maybe it's going to Nikki Haley. So could that be a neck and neck race? So if the pathway for defeat for Donald Trump is a closer uh, uh, win in Iowa than is, that is expected, and then an upset with Nikki Haley uh, in New Hampshire. Does that throw, does, is that, so Justin, is that possible? And does that throw the whole election into a, into a, a stir afterwards? Well, the, the problem, the problem with, uh, so I don't think New Hampshire will have uh, a massive impact on what happens after New Hampshire, because um, Nikki Haley is sort of the perfect candidate for New Hampshire. Uh, this is exactly the kind of Republican that uh, they like. Um, they like they like more moderate Republicans. They like um, women uh, Republicans. <laughs> they, they, this is like this is sort of the ideal for Nikki Haley. Um, and I don't know that it necessarily translates to after this. And the reality is when you're polling over 50 percent, which is what Trump is doing in many of these places, then you're always going to win. I mean, as long as you're over 50%, you can't lose. So the only way really for him to lose is for um, Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley to get out of the race um, and Ramaswamy. They all basically all of them have to get out of the race except for one challenger. And then that one challenger, when it's close to 50 50, in some states, they might be able to break through and be slightly better than Trump than in other states. That's literally the only chance. There's no other way. And it's hard to imagine um, that really working out if it's Nikki Haley, because a lot of the Ron DeSantis people, you would think just based on what you hear and which is what I've heard anecdotally, the polling data, stuff like that. A lot of those people, their second choice would prop or I shouldn't say their second choice. Uh, they would probably choose Trump over Haley given that option. Right. So if you're Nikki Haley, it's hard to imagine you're getting all the Ron DeSantis people sure. if he drops out, but you need all the Ron DeSantis people to have any chance of actually beating him. So what that means is the only chance really is for Ron DeSantis or I guess Ramaswamy, but he doesn't have enough for it to be him over Ron DeSantis so the only chance is it is is if Nikki Haley drops out, Ramaswamy drops out, and it's just one on one Trump and DeSantis, and basically all of the Haley people who probably don't like DeSantis very much go with DeSantis anyway because they just really don't want Trump, and DeSantis can just make the appeal that look, I am more electable than Trump, and Trump's got all these distractions and legal problems and all of that, and it's just one on one, and that will happen. The problem that we have is in the past, when you look at any of these primaries that have taken place, Republican or Democrat, that never happens in time for for the leader to get knocked off the pedestal. It always takes too it, it often takes too long for that to occur. Now there are exceptions. Mm. There are exceptions. Didn't we, just see, didn't we just see an exception? Didn't we just see? Yes, uh... which was what I was going to talk about. That okay. we did just see an exception in the Democratic Party primary. Exactly. Um. Uh, Joe Biden, these were his numbers at the Iowa caucus, 14%. Okay. 14%. He did not win Iowa in New Hampshire. He got 8%, 8% of the vote in New Hampshire. He was beaten horribly in those two States. Um, and then he, he won, uh, uh, South Carolina and 
Then you get to Super Tuesday, and all of the uh, many of the challengers, other than Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who kind of had the same people voting for them, same types of voters voting for them, drop out basically right before Super Tuesday. All of those more establishment-leaning voters went to Biden, and that's how Biden became the par- the party nominee. Okay, yeah, Buttigieg. So that's the secured only- a spot as. Department yep, of uh, and, Transportation. And uh, what's her name? The Elizabeth screaming Warren. lady from Minnesota. No, from Minnesota. Elizabeth Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar. Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar. Right. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the Actually, Elizabeth Warren, you could argue, is the reason that Bernie Sanders didn't win. Mm-hmm. Because if she had dropped out, a lot of her people would have gone to Sanders and that would have helped him fight neck and neck. But she waited too long. So this is the this is the problem that we have. The only way, if you're if you don't want to see Trump win, I should say, if, if you don't want to see Trump win, the only way. That can happen at this point in time in the primary, not in the general election, obviously, but in the primary. The only way Trump can be beaten is if uh, all the candidates drop out except for one. That one probably has to be either Ramaswamy or DeSantis. Ramaswamy isn't going to be that person because he doesn't have enough votes to justify it. So it's got to be DeSantis. And then all the Nikki Haley people have to suddenly start voting for DeSantis. And it all has to happen probably within the next three or four by, by Super Tuesday. That's the only way. And even then, Trump is still polling over 50% in a lot of these places that he's probably going to win. So this is this is a I've never seen a primary where a candidate is running away with it like this. Even even Barack Obama, who is the poster child golden boy of the of of political candidates in my lifetime in terms of solidifying support within his own party. People forget but a lot of people thought he was going to lose those primaries whoa, uh, whoa, back, whoa. way back in 2008 because he was running against Hillary Clinton and that whole mm. machine and everything. And so it is very rare for a person to be winning by this much. And Trump has, and this is the last thing, Trump has a built-in little bonus boost in the electoral process as, as these um, primaries move along. And that is that... We're going to get into his trial period here coming up soon. And the more you get into the trials, the more you start uh, um, talking about him in the media and all of that, the more it looks like they might actually put him in jail, the more Republicans are going to vote for him in these primaries. We've just, that's what we've seen over the past year. And it's only going to get more so that way as things move along. So Trump, Trump is in, perfect position to win the primaries the, the only thing that the only thing i disagree with uh was you calling barack obama the golden child or whatever of the left considering that joe biden got more votes than him so we'll just put that out there uh he got more he got more uh, votes among african americans i believe as well so well, that's no that wasn't a joke but <laughs> take, take that, Trump <laughs> that shot was, out there. oh that wasn't uh jim chris unless you have anything else to say probably should get to our main topic we're already 20 minutes in as you could tell justin loves election season all right let's get into it we'll we'll talk more about it next week when we have the results of iowa behind us uh i will say that if he comes out ahead uh you know what was he polling at like 52 percent, whatever i said if he comes out with more than 52 percent of the vote there's no pathway to defeat it's over so uh we'll talk more about that next week i'm sure but the main topic at hand we want to talk about d dei oh my gosh i'm getting choked up just talking about this such an important topic here (laughs) 
according to Wikipedia, which is the authority on all things <clears throat> official narrative, DEI means diversity, equity, and inclusion, usually abbreviated DEI, refers to organizational framework which seek to promote the fair treatment and full participation of all people, particularly groups who have historically been underrepresented or subject to discrimination on the basis of identity or disability. Chris Talgo, if you have a problem with that, you must just be a raging bigot racist every ist out there. Uh, what what's your what's your problem? What's the problem with this, Chris? Well, Donnie, we're a couple of ways from the Martin Luther King holiday, and I ascribe to the Martin Luther King Jr. Street uh, speech of judge a person by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And oh my god, I, that's the most racist thing in the world. I know. Since how, how post twenty twenty, uh, how dare you say that? Yeah, I know, but I mean, DEI is 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 racist in nature because what you're doing is you are dividing people up into different groups based on race or other you know immutable characteristics, and then you're just telling them. Oh, we need to have special rules for you and special favors, you know, apply to you because you're actually not. I mean, th this is what is you know written between the lines. You're actually not as good as those other people, and I just reject that on you know on its face. I think that we live in a meritocracy. I think that we live in a country, the land of opportunity, and I think that uh, everyone should you know be given a an opportunity. You know, the, we're not going to have equal outcomes. We're never going to have equal outcomes. Uh, but I, I strongly believe in, you know, we should try to give everyone an equal opportunity. And if you really wanted to do that, I, I know this is kind of a little outside the scope of this conversation. You know what you'd do? You'd pass universal school choice because that way every single child could have the ability to go to a great school, get a great education and probably have a uh, successful shot in life to pursue the American dream. However, as we all know, Many of the uh, Democrat-ruled uh, uh, urban areas in our country reject school choice, you know, on on any count. So, uh, really, what I think this is is about uh, them just trying to perpetuate their power and uh, this whole systemic racism, you know, garbage. I think you know it's it, it's ridiculous, Donnie. You know, I were talking about uh, yesterday about how when we were growing up in the late '90s, early 2000s, it looked like you know this this whole like race division. And uh, this race baiting was a thing of the past. And I especially hoped and thought so when, uh, you know, 2008, when Barack Obama got elected, that we were going to finally put all this stuff behind us. However, we've done the exact opposite. And I think mm -hmm. 2020 and the George Floyd, um, you know, protest riots uh, really, you know, brought this back into uh, the, the mainstream culture where now the, the default mode in America is that America is systemically racist and we need to do A, B and C and D, E, I to make sure that we uh, get rid of it. So uh, that was some good wordplay right there. Mm. Yeah. DEI, it, it's been, a, it, you know, I feel like that term is somewhat new, but like this has been a thing for a while. Uh, affirmative action started under correct me if I'm wrong. It was like Kennedy in like the 60s or something like that. So it's been around for like 60 plus mm. years. Uh, the latest iteration is DEI, which was supercharged, as Chris mentioned, during the, he called it riots. I'm going to call it the 2020 Summer of Love. Uh, that's the way that CNN likes to present it. So after the Summer of Love is when we saw DEI supercharged, so supercharged, in fact, that the numbers are really pretty crazy, actually. According to a Bloomberg piece, 
these initiatives have actually been overwhelming in their in their outcomes. The piece, which I don't think I have in my show notes, sorry, Andy, is titled Corporate America Promised to Hire a Lot More People of Color. It actually did. And the article reads in part saying that the years after Black Lives Matter protests, the S&P 100 added more than 300,000 jobs. 94% of those jobs went to people of color. So according to this article, out of the 300,000 jobs created by S&P 100 firms, 282,000 of those jobs went to people of color. So, you know, that's that's kind of the, the outcome uh, in just terms of kind of job placement uh, that has resulted from these DEI initiatives. So to counteract discrimination, corporate America decided that they should discriminate against non-people of color. Uh, what's the problem, Jim? What what, what, uh, what uh, racist dog whistles do you have in line to, to fight back against this progress <laughs> in America? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you better unmute yourself. How that's that's the you? hard, I, that's the hard, kind of hard hitting questions. That yeah. We should be seeing. <laughs> I, I, I love how you set that up, Donnie. <laughs> Shouldn't this be a friendly podcast, at least, no. especially for me? Uh, I'm your well, boss and everything. Uh, hostile, I think. I'm angling. I'm angling to be the next moderator at the CNN debate. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Well, I, I'm, I was. I took some notes earlier, and some some thoughts came to me. Um, yeah, even when I woke up in a nightmare, I actually did have a nightmare that kept me up last night, uh, and started thinking about this podcast, which kept me up even longer. But uh, you know, the, the slogan "diversity is our strength," right? You know, it's been a slogan. It's been a you know part of our cultural dogma now for uh, several decades. But diversity is our strength. That's not actually true, is it? I mean, it's not necessarily true. Uh, I mean, it could be. I mean, diversity doesn't automatically. Um, but you know, but diversity itself, as as a thing, as an end, doesn't automatically, in every circumstance, make any organization or any endeavor stronger. Um, you know, not diversity may be a good, you may think it's a good thing. You may want, you may desire in your organization or in your university or, or in your corporation, you may, it may make you happy to see different colored skin on people as they walk around your building. Um, and maybe, you know, that's something that you want as a company and you should be able to choose that. Um, but we've, we've gone from, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Bill Clinton was elected president. And Justin may even remember this. You know, he had a cabinet that looks like America, right? It was a it was a big deal that, um, you know, that he had uh, you know minorities, not all white men and not all white people in his in his cabinet. And so, you know, we want a cabinet that looks like America. Fine, okay, um, you know, but we've gone from that to basically the idea that if you value competence, if if you you consider diversity, but you actually because you want your company or your organization to succeed as much as possible. If you value competence a half a step above diversity of, of racial makeup or sexual orientation or uh, gender, any of that stuff, we've, we've gone from that. So if, if you value competence and achievement over these racial and other category, you know, categorized checkboxes, now you are up just by doing that, you're upholding supposed um, systemic racism and even white supremacy um, all because of your white fragility. And so what's happened here, you know, is that the left, everything, <laughs> everything bad in this country comes as an idea from the left and often from universities. But they have weaponized 
the, the natural tolerance and kindness of the American people to keep pushing farther and farther and farther. I mean, um, as Chris said, you know, he, if you quote Martin Luther King today, you are upholding white supremacy. <laughs> but that's absurd. And we have to live in this world where that is considered a truism by academia and especially our media. Um, but, you know, the good news is, is that, well, just to back up just slightly. So this whole, you know, the, the summer of love, as you love it, uh, Donnie, um, kind of really kickstarted this whole thing with Black Lives Matter. Um, it made an entire industry out of DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion. And all of these corporations um, in Hollywood, uh, on Wall Street, um, in universities, they all hire these DEI officers, executives, give them big, big, uh, big salaries. And their job is basically to hold seminars in which you will be made woke. You will um, people had to read what was that book called White Fragility? Um, that was mm -hmm. like the big bestseller that was like in every corporate office uh, by Robin. What's her name? Robin DeAngelo. Yeah, Robin D'Angelo. Yeah, White Fragility. That was like mandatory reading in every corporate headquarters in the United States. And it was imposed on all of their employees, too. It was quite the industry. But um, as we see in the show notes, uh, you would think companies that could afford such silliness like Google and Meta slash Facebook are now starting to cut out this nonsense and start to get back to the business of making products and services that the American people want so that their stock price goes up so that their shareholders are, are pleased. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, the title of this podcast is D, uh, DEI DOA. Um, I think it may not be dead yet, but it's mostly dead or at least it's pretty injured. And I think we may get back to um, what Chris had said, um, putting all of this checkbox nonsense out and get back to stop weaponizing the tolerance and kindness of the American people and um, and let competence reign. Yeah, there's uh, something that you said uh, when you were referencing Chris's uh, quote by Martin Luther King. Um, my One of my favorite quotes of all time, Thomas Sowell, if you have always believed that everyone should play by the same rules and be judged by the same standards, that would have gotten you labeled a radical 60 years ago, a liberal 30 years ago, and a racist today. <laughs> that is like, that, that to me like sums it up. Because like the issue for me, it, it comes down to like, rooting out real discrimination uh, and prioritizing qualities that have nothing to do with people being the best at the job. Like if this all came down to, if all of this DEI stuff was truly to just like stop people that were otherwise the best for the job, but because of the color of their skin, they were sidelined. And if we could do things to make it more of an objective selection process or something like that, to, to take all of those things that don't matter about the job at hand, and put those to the side and just get the best candidate, that'd be great. I'd be all for that. But that's not what it is. Like, this is, yeah, we want to take those, uh, the, the you know, you're the best for the job. And we're going to put that secondary. Secondary to what color your skin is. Like, that's just discrimination. It's not reverse discrimination or reverse racism or whatever terms people throw around. It's just discrimination. Like, that's all it is. So I really hope that one day, we get to a point in time where we look back at some of like the quote unquote woke rhetoric of like the 2020s and be like, man, what were we thinking back then as a country? I really hope that we get there one day. And I think that we have a, a handful of stories in our show notes that we're going to talk about here that that seemingly back that up um, or at least show that we're on that trend line. 
Fingers hey, Donnie, Donnie, real quick, just to play pessimist, because I've been, you know, Mr. Optimist lately. Uh, if, <laughs> you if, if, if the DEI and CRT stuff is, you know, invading, uh, you know, elementary schools and high schools, I'm a little bit worried that this is going to become actually more entrenched, you know, a decade or two from now than it is right now. Because I think that the people who are rejecting it are people like you, me, Jim and Justin and others who grew up before all this stuff became, you know, the latest fad. But I'm a little bit worried because I've got, you know, like young, uh, you know, cousins and nieces and stuff, and they buy this stuff hook, line and sinker. So mm -hmm. just saying. Yep. Yeah, we'll see. But uh, mm -hmm. there's been a couple of things that have been happening lately, like I said, that uh, seem to be showing that maybe we're in a, a correcting swing of that pendulum. I'm not sure. One of them, and this is the lady that is, oh, wait, I, I just assume her gender. Mm -hmm. I really, I'm sorry if that's the I case. The, the person that is featured on our thumbnail of this podcast Claudine Gay, who is formerly the, the president of Harvard. <laughs> She's not anymore. I think a lot of people, she came under fire as being a, one of these kind of DEI, you know, initiative, whatever. And she was under fire for all of this uh, accusations of plagiarism and all this sorts of different stuff. I don't know the whole full story, but I do know the latest development is that uh, she is she is resigned. Some say resigned in disgrace from her position. Um, I don't know, Jim. Have you been following this, or, or Justin? Have you been following the story at all? Is this uh, is this accurate? How I'm portraying it? Well, yeah. I mean, she allowed rampant anti-Semitism and actual protests and actions that actually put the safety of Jewish students at Harvard in danger. And she treated it as if uh, that was no big deal. And so that was like the beginning. And then they found plagiarism to uh, to dump her. Yeah. Well, the well, the real. The real thing, it was even worse than that, actually, because all these campuses are allowing rampant racism against Jews. That's not that's just standard um, now in, in higher academia. She was at a congressional hearing and she was being questioned by uh, a congresswoman from New York, a Republican. Stefanik. Very. Yeah. Stefanik, Representative Stefanik, who very, very directly asked um, three different presidents. I think they were all of Ivy League institutions. They were all mm -hmm. elite institutions. MIT, MIT, um, uh, Penn and Harvard. Okay, MIT. So MIT is not Ivy League, but it's close enough. And and sh the the question was very. It was very direct. It was if if you have people on your campus, students on your campus, calling for the genocide of a group of people. Is that a form of harassment and in violation of your school's policies? And each one of the presidents essentially said, uh, not, not really, no. And, and, and they had ways of trying to avoid answering the question. They were asked over and over and over and over and over again and over and over and over again. They refused to say it was a form of harassment and they, so they said it depended on the context well but but, but justin they also the they also asked them it, it was only in relation to jews now i bet if they would have asked the question yeah. oh are you against the genocide of transgender students they would have been oh my gosh that's the biggest yes, thing in the world right. right this whole thing was because in the context oppressed, oppressed. Of, right it was this whole thing was in the context of jewish students being mm. mistreated on college campuses and they were very specifically asked that so that was initially what got her in a lot of trouble and in fact the president of Penn, I believe she resigned yeah. on her own. If I remember right, I don't know what happened uh, at MIT, but I know that all three of them got huge backlash. Donors came out and said they're pulling their money because, you know, a lot of 
there's a lot of Jewish alumni with a lot of money from these different universities. And they came out and said, nope, we're not giving you money anymore. Uh, and so that was a big part of it, as, as Jim said. The plagiarism stuff that came out um, was really just uh, the icing on the cake for for her. But you had two reasons to get rid of her, I guess is my point. One is she doesn't think that calling for the genocide of Jews on your college campus is is problematic. And two, she thinks it's okay to plagiarize people. <laughs> She's the head of a university. So, I mean, I think there's plenty of reasons to get rid of her. Yeah. Yeah. But, and the but, plagiarism but thing. They didn't fire her. They didn't fire her because mm -hmm. you didn't, you didn't mention this. They removed her from being president, yep. but she's still a professor at the university. And she's, and, and I believe she's making like a million dollars, some crazy amount of salary, like a million dollars a year or something yep. like that. So she's not out. Even though she was caught plagiarizing and she's okay with genocide for Jews, she's not been removed from the university. She just is no longer the president. Yeah, but I feel like I feel like uh, maybe if this was a year or so ago, it's like all of this would have just bounced off and she would have been promoted if that were even possible to some higher position. But I don't know. Part, this, this is well, yeah, I mean, if you asked Joe Biden, he probably would have. Uh, but it just seems to be like a little bit of a data point of maybe kind of a backward slide of all these DEI things. Um, this has been increasingly just like a, con uh, a conversation in the public. Um, most recently, Elon Musk got into it over on X with uh, Mark Cuban, who is uh, most popular for his uh, role on Shark Tank, I think, and <laughs> owning the Dallas Mavericks or whatever for all you sports fans over there. Uh, but they had a little bit of a feud uh, on Twitter, or on X, whatever you want to call it, about um, about DEI. Elon Musk saying that it was basically a uh, um, another term for racism or something like that. And then Mark Cuban, being the progressive virtue signaling guy that he is, had to push back against him and you know tell him that he's wrong and how he works all the time to make sure that there is as much diversity in his organization as possible or something like that and then elon musk hit him back with some some remark like oh yeah well uh you know give me a call when you start uh you know hiring like five foot asian women to your basketball team or something mm -hmm. like that oh which was just hilarious but um but yeah so that went back and forth for a while uh that was pretty interesting but one thing, Jim, and I'm going to tee you up for this because you and I had a conversation about this. And I think that this is something that is a little bit more uh, consumable for your kind of average person when it comes to this stuff. What they're doing in boardrooms and corporations is one thing. What they're doing with presidents of Ivy League colleges is, is one thing. But when it comes to the movies and TV shows and entertainment that you welcome into your home on a near daily basis, uh, that is something I think everyone can kind of recognize or uh, kind of understand. And I'm talking, of course, about Star Wars, Marvel, Lucasfilm, Disney, all of that, and uh, kind of the direction that they have taken their properties in the last probably several years. And I think that, uh, I mean, you could outline some of this. You probably know it better than I do at this point. Uh, but it seems like they're not really learning their lesson. So give us a nice little gym rant about the, the state of our entertainment industry here. Oh, I don't know if I can do a whole gym rant. Uh, you know, we're not standing in our uh, in the office kitchen where I usually get those going. But, you know, look, I actually I brought up that example as we were talking about uh, what we were going to talk about today with uh, DEI being DOA. In really no other corporation does the public really see the results of a DE, of DEI policies like they would in Hollywood? Um, Disney, 
took um, Disney bought um, Lucasfilm from George Lucas for four billion dollars, I believe, um, and they have been losing money hand over fist um, ever since they rebooted <laughs> Star Wars to uh, tell different stories, uh, to not tell the story of Han, Luke, and Leia, to not tell like the classic hero's journey. They hired all of, um, they, they diversified, let's just say that, they diversified their writer's room and made it majority female. Um, Disney historically is a female brand. The princesses, you know, they've made billions of dollars on princess movies and princess toys from all of that stuff from Frozen all the way back to Snow White. You know, that they're a girl brand. They're, the Disney, for the most part, was for little girls. And then they bought boy brands like Star Wars, which little boys like I was when Star Wars first came out. I loved it. I could not get enough of Star Wars. I wanted to be Han Solo. Um, I had a lot of those little action figures that, you know, my mom threw away or else I could retire on them because they were the original ones from the late 70s. And, um, you know, so Disney decided um, in pursuit, I'm 100% certain of this, in pursuit of diversity, equity, and inclusion, decided properties like Star Wars are too male-centered. They're too boy-centric. We're going to make them for girls. And they've discovered that when they do that, girls aren't interested. And boys also aren't interested. <laughs> that there are different interests that little boys and little girls have. And frankly, teenage boys and teenage girls, and then adults who in, uh, enjoy that entertainment um, because of its you know, place in their life as in their childhoods moving forward. And so in my mind, I, I really believe that Disney is being ruined by DEI. Um, they show pictures of the, the head of Lucasfilm is Kathleen Kennedy, who is a leftist feminist. She fills her writer's room with other leftist feminists, and they are completely out of touch and out of step with the American people. And so what's awesome about the free market is I don't know how much, I don't know how long Disney can keep losing billions of dollars a year, but we're going to find out because they don't seem to have any interest in, in making a correction and making products that people want instead of trying to impose an agenda um, and that diversity, equity, inclusion agenda on everybody else. And again, I think that's a part and parcel of the weaponizing people's tolerance and, and, uh, and kindness, but people are not going to pay. For it, right? <laughs> they may be, they may, they may admire your idea to be diverse and more equitable and more inclusive, but they're not going to pay for it. Yeah, it's just insane because, like, you were running off a list to a different uh, a colleague of ours of just like all the different characters and brands that they're switching over to being female centric. Where you got uh, Indiana Jones is kind of was supposed to hand off the torch to Phoebe Waller Bridge, but then they just canceled it because they lost so much money on that property. And then in the Marvel universe, you know, Iron Man's being replaced by a woman, Black Panther replaced by a woman, the Hulk replaced by a woman, Thor replaced by a woman. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Literally, like every one of their main characters has like a female alternative now. And then in Star Wars, you know, after after like losing money uh, progressively over all of their different uh, Star Wars movies that were coming out, you know what's the best thing that we're gonna do? We're gonna make a Ray centric movie directed by a World Economic Forum young global leaders activist feminist type who says that she likes to go out there and make men uncomfortable and it's about time that star wars is driven uh storyline wise by a woman so it's just like man have you not learned anything about anything over the past several years but 
you know, that's and, the, and, that's and the just let me be clear, it's not just because these are women centric stories that I think they're failing. I think they're failing because they are not hiring people based on their abilities to write and to conceive and to create stories and to be storytellers. They're checking boxes and they're checking lots of boxes. But one box they don't check is talent. And what you end up with is things that, you know, could be interesting, could be compelling, but they're not because they've drained all the real talent out of their organizations and imported um, checkbox, uh, checkbox people that don't know what they're doing and can't and cannot just they simply don't have the talent. They cannot create good stories. And it's yeah. part of it is because they have an ideological bent and not a creative bent. Yeah, I mean, even even the the head of Disney was saying like, oh yeah, I think we've gotten too far into the pushing an agenda category. We got we got to walk that back, but it'll be years before all of this stuff goes through the process and they could walk it back. So they're going to be a lagging indicator. We'll see what happens with that. But I think all of this DEI stuff um, is kind of like a like a things are economically good sort of issue. Uh, I think that if the wheels start falling off the economy, you're going to see a retrenchment into sound economic practices and kind of do away with some of this stuff. It's like uh, when Isaac Orr was on here uh, talking about like the Kuznets curve where, where people take better care of the environment when economic times are good because you only worry about that stuff when you're not worrying about putting food on the table. So I think like once these businesses start kind of losing money and start getting a little bit worried about, uh, you know, what the bottom line is going to be and their kind of future financial projections, they're like, you know what, all of this kind of side stuff that we're doing to virtue signaling, it really isn't important. And it's actually kind of like uh, kind of uh, uh, progresses us in the opposite direction. So we're just going to put that to the side. And like I said, we're seeing some examples of this. I got a whole bunch of links in the show notes. One of them is a CNBC article titled Tech Companies Like Google and Meta Made Cuts to DEI Programs in 2023 After Big Promises in Prior Years. It says some companies have laid off DEI staffers and leaders of diverse employee resource groups, downsized learning and development programs, and cut budgets for external DEI programs uh, groups by as much as 90% in 2023, uh, sources told CNBC. Another article is talking about this uh, DEI consulting firm Paradigm that released a report recently that showed an in that firms were increasingly de-emphasizing and deprioritizing their DEI initiatives. And they had a whole bunch of stats that were pointing to that. Um, and there was a whole bunch of more examples of this. I won't get into all of them, but uh, it seems like these stories kind of point at like maybe we've crested in this whole DEI thing and maybe we're starting to see a little bit of a, an ebbing of this, uh, of this movement. Chris, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe I should go to Justin. You're, you're well, shaking I, your head over no, there. No, no, no. I just, I just wanted to add one thing to what you were saying earlier. Do it. We're also starting to see states pass laws, especially uh, in terms of higher education, saying that this is illegal. So Oklahoma just did it and a bunch of other states are, uh, are addressing this through the legislature by saying, wait a second, if we're spending state money on this stuff, we're not going to allow it to be in our public schools." So that to me is a great sign of, you know, what might be to come. And I just wish it would also apply to elementary, middle and uh, high schools, because that's where I think this stuff is really taking hold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got something to add to that, but Justin, you're shaking your head during my little closing set up there for for uh chris to jump in what what do you have to object to uh i i you know i don't know that i agree with most of i would say quite a bit of this conversation i don't agree with actually <laughs> okay. right. to be Let's totally honest yeah so so um 
on the more recent point of whether this stuff is is going away, I agree with the premise that when economic times are are you know good, um, people start have a tendency to start getting into things that are not really sort of at the foundation and the core of economic development, right? Okay. So I agree with that. Um, businesses are 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 going to be more focused on actually chasing dollars when times are getting worse. But I think, uh, and I was surprised to hear you say it this way because you you should know you should know better than this. I think that that in the modern economy you don't chase dollars by going to the customers. That's not what you do. You chase dollars by doing whatever the government wants, what BlackRock wants. Etc. That's who, that's where you chase the dollars, and point. so you could make you could make an argument that you could make an argument that the worse things get, the more these companies are going to try eventually to eventually to lean into this, because the people with the money are the banks and the you know the central banks and all these big government programs, etc. And that's where they want you to go. So you're going to go where they tell you to go. You're not going to go right. where the regular guy I, is. I, who cares? I slipped, I slipped into thinking traditional economic rules. We, we're so far beyond that at this point. What am I thinking? Right. I mean, I've got just, the Great Reset right. book right back there. That's... Justin, I, I, I agree. But do you think that what happened with Bud Light and Target could show that there still is, uh, you know, like, like power for the consumer to say, no, we don't want this stuff? Or do you think that it's just not as powerful as it used to be so where i where i agree i think with you know the, a lot of the comments that have been said is that i think that people have realized in these big corporate superstructures that they really shouldn't be as in your face about yeah many of these programs that mm -hmm. that if they're just beating you over the head with it then that's going to cause problems okay mm -hmm. so i i do think they will back off a little bit on that so so like dylan mulvaney was like the perfect example of that okay you had a person who was obviously not the right choice to sell beer that's primarily consumed by you know young men and you know people who the, the sort of the football and american flag crowd and you're putting out there someone who's obviously not the right spokesperson for that, right? And you're doing it to prove a, a to, to sort of push a social agenda, and it completely backfired. And I think that in those cases, you are going to see some of that back down. But I don't think that the overarching trajectory of any of this has changed. I just think that the strategy for how you're promoting it changes. Hmm. So. For example, it's been well documented that a lot of these companies have started removing the terms ESG uh, from their various annual reports and other things. They don't want to use it anymore. Even some of the biggest advocates of it, corporations, have started have stopped calling things ESG. Um, and they're actually instructing people not to use the terms ESG anymore in these big corporations. But they also are doing the policies themselves underlying ESG for the most part really haven't changed all that much. They're still all in on it. And I think that's that they're just being uh, craftier about it. They're calling it sustainable uh, capitalism and, you know, com compassionate capitalism and all these things. They're trying to figure out another way of rebranding it. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the policies themselves, um, I, I don't know that a whole lot, really has has changed um 
in, in despite the backlash. Uh, when you go to Target, for example, you know, Target got huge backlash for some of its policies. But when you go to Target, they still have all sorts of, you know, things pushing sort of the pride agenda and all of that stuff that they haven't stopped selling those products. They've just been a little bit different about the way they've gone about it. They're not quite as in your face about it. So I do think that aspect of it has has changed fundamentally. And this is, I guess, where I would say I disagree with some of the other comments that have been made. You know, I don't think there's anything I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the idea that uh, in a mar in a true marketplace, you put out ideas and you put out products and you put out services and you, you market things in different ways. And eventually over time experience and the bottom line forces you to go in whatever the direction is that most people want. That's, that's kind of most of your customers want. That's how marketplaces generally work. Um, and so for me, uh, DEI programs and stuff like that in a true marketplace really are not, I don't find them to be even remotely problematic because ultimately if that's what people want, then that's what people will support. And if that's not what people want, then people won't support them. And so I say, try things. If you think they'll work and you think that's what customers want, then, then try that. I think that's fine. If you're a private company, that's what you should do. Where you get into trouble is when you have external forces imposing these ideologies on these companies, and then these companies imposing their idea that same ideology on their customers, and that's that's the whole great reset system, and that's what's happening. This is why you have Dylan Mulvaney, and this is why you have Target selling swimsuits for uh, transgender kids. When you know what's the there's no market for that. Why are they doing that? Because there's this giant great reset thing happening behind the scenes that's pushing all of this forward. And so for me, it's not DEI. That's a problem. I, I, I don't care about that. It doesn't bother me at all. Try things. And if they work, then great. If they don't, then do something different. The problem I have is that there's all this modern monetary theory money put into the system in through the banking, from the central banks, into the banking system, from the government as well, that is that is creating massive distortions in the marketplace that allow for these kinds of programs to be utilized regardless of whether they're actually effective or not in terms of satisfying customer desires and needs. And that's that to me is the fundamental issue. If you didn't have modern monetary theory, if we had a balanced budget every single year, none of this would be a problem. None of, literally none of it would be a problem. Sure. It would not matter because because customers would pick and choose the companies they want. That, that that because we don't care what customers think and that's the corporate they don't care about it. That's the problem. And the reason they don't care is because BlackRock has more money than all the customers. So they no, see, so why should they care? Justin, eventually you have to actually make a profit. I mean, I know it's very, very important to have your ESG score super high so that, mm -hmm. um, you know, BlackRock and Vanguard and all those who, who control all the venture capital and then the banks, you know, because Disney, when they make a film, they take out a loan for a hundred, maybe $200 million. And then they say, okay, we're going to pay this back because you know, our Marvel films, we make about a billion dollars in profit, just profit on those films. They Disney, when Christian Toto was on our podcast at the, the last week of 2023, uh, I did a I did a little math in, in you know, based on box office, box office returns and, and whatnot. And Disney's major film studios, Lucasfilm, 
um, Disney Animation and Star Wars just on their theatrical releases lost more than a billion dollars. Eventually, you can't just keep borrowing money. This is not, you know, Disney is not some venture capital firm or, you know, some, some uh, you know, some startup, I should say. They're, they're, they're celebrating their 100th anniversary this year or did in 2023. Eventually, you have to produce movies that will make money. You can't just keep borrowing money and losing a billion dollars a year. Um, Target, you know, so the, the people actually do have a voice in this. Disney's in big, big well, trouble. Dis- um, well, no, they, no, no. They, they paid out a dividend money. The, other, the other day because, because Bob Iger, I, I follow this way too closely, I suppose, but Bob Iger had announced, I think two years ago, that he was going to give dividends to his stockholders. And then he delayed it and delayed it and delayed it. He finally paid off the dividend, I think a month, a month or two ago, 30 cents a share. That's pathetic. That is ridiculous. And he only did it because he promised it. And so Disney is in big trouble. And a lot of these woke companies that adhere to ESG and DEI standards are going to be in big trouble because by and large customers are not buying it. And when you produce entertainment from Hollywood and you're trying, you know, and the, the goal should be to appeal as broad to as broad an audience as possible so you can maximize profits. Instead, they are going forward with your Great Reset, DEI, ESG, uh, leftist, woke agenda, and the customers are overwhelmingly rejecting it. They're losing so much money. So it doesn't matter how many loans you can get. Eventually, you're not not a going concern anymore as a corporation. How much money has Disney lost? Disney, the company itself. How much? What is its net? What is is its its, its, uh, profit loss for the last year? It's is lost. it positive or negative? They've uh, lost negative. no money, Jim. They, I'll, I'll save you the time. They have not. They haven't lost any money. They make money. They make money every single quarter. They might lose money on certain things they do, but overall, they make money. They're not losing money. That's not true. Their so stock that's, prices. That's, their stock prices at half of what it was two, three years ago. Well, stock prices have. That's not necessarily that's, that's related. How, how much company. money they've announced that's, that they've Jim, lost? That's not true. That's not how stock billions. prices work. Justin, they've lost. No, mo- they, they, Bob Iger has to admit in in um, shareholder calls that Disney Plus, their streaming service, has lost multiple billions of dollars. They have poured billions into that service and have seen no profit from it. They are losing. I, a I lot understand of money, that some products have lost money. Yes, but last quarter, for example, they their their profit was up two hundred and sixty four million dollars compared to the previous quarter. So you can't tell me that they're losing money. They're not losing money overall. They're making money, and this is and this is this is largely the point. You make it sound like it's because they they need to do this in order to get access to loans. That's not right. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a stock price. Stock prices have nothing. This is not related whatsoever to whether a company. I I know I'm. It's true. Well, that, that's true. The stock that, price that, can go a, that's down really even big if news the company the is making who's, money. That's really big news, Justin, that it, the stock price doesn't matter to the people investing in the company. If you bought stock uh, four the years people ago- people investing in it? the company Justin, are uh, the Andy people pushing the, screen, the agenda. It? 150 bucks a share, and that was worth $89? Okay. Well, yeah, me, I, think, I think the stock price let matters me, a little me, bit to the people who put money into the company. I think they want it to be a little better than that. Let me finish. Let me finish. Yeah, okay. You make it sound like- the reason that this is that they're doing this, you're 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 suggesting that th- what I'm arguing is that they're doing this in order to get access to loans and capital and stuff like that. That's not what I'm saying at all. Actually, that's not necessarily the case. It can be, but that's not necessarily the case. These are people who own the company. They are not people who are just investing. They own it. 
BlackRock owns these companies. They are the owners. They are the boss. They're Bob Iger's boss. So when, when they go to Larry Fink and they say, here's what we're doing uh, for in terms of our corporate structure and all of our policies. And he says, I want more ESG stuff. It doesn't matter whether they're making money or not. Make, that's what, that is what the owner of the company is demanding. You, you make it sound like BlackRock is going to abandon Disney because they're doing too much ESG. BlackRock is doing ESG because, I mean, e Disney is doing ESG because of BlackRock. That's the whole point. So the, if the owners are demanding it, then that's what's going to happen. The other, the other thing that's missing from this whole equation of, of this trajectory argument that's being made is that in Europe, as I've said ad nauseum over and over and over again, they are on the verge of making this a requirement by law. So all these companies that do business in Europe, and Disney is one of them, is going to have to have an ESG system. They have to have DAI. That's the, that's the law to do business in Europe. That's what's going to happen. It's on the verge of happening. And so if you're Disney and you're saying, okay, my largest shareholders are telling me I have to do this. Uh, Europe is saying it's going to be a law soon. And if I want to do business in Europe, I'm going to have to do it. And I'm going to have to impose it on everybody in my supply chain. Then of course you're going to do it. And Bob, Iger, whoever the CEO is of Disney at any given time, they don't care. They're doing what their bosses tell them, what the regulatory system tells them, and they're going to get a big fat paycheck at the end of it, regardless of whether Disney goes under in 20 years. Bob Iger isn't the CEO of Disney in 20 years. He's gone. He's not the CEO of Disney probably in five. He's going to be gone, and he'll have tons of money as a result of it. That's how the whole system works. If your argument were true, then why would anybody do ESG or DEI? They're not good for business almost ever, so why do it? at all. And yet we see company after company after company after company doing it precisely because this is what the shareholders are pushing. Not all shareholders, but the ones that actually control most of the stock. That's the reality of the situation. And why are Chris. they doing it? Because they've got all this money flowing into their coffers from these central banks and um, private banks, which are essentially tied to the central banks. And the government's telling them, if you don't do it, we're going to force you to do it anyway. That's how the system works. Chris, you thought you were going to be the negative one on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, generally, uh, I, I, I see where Justin's coming from. I mean, we've had this conversation and other kind of uh, manifestations when it comes to like seemingly we, we've had conversations on this podcast where we're like, oh, does it seem like uh, people are starting to <laughs> abandon ESG? You can find a whole bunch of articles suggesting that. But if you really look into it, it's like, no, we're just not going to use the term ESG. We're still going to do it. We're just not going to use the term for it. So that's essentially what you're saying, right, Justin, when it comes to all of this stuff. Like maybe when you're at a surface level, the trend line looks like all this DEI stuff is kind of run its course or whatever. But if you actually look down into the kind of the structural, uh, uh, you know, infrastructure of all of this stuff, it's still there very strong. That's what you're saying. Yes, I would say the one the one difference is I do think the marketing aspect of it, I do think has backed off and will continue to back off, at least in the short term. I don't think they're going to have lots of Dylan Mulvaney's, but that's not all ESG is. I think most of ESG is not that. So, yes, right. with that one caveat, yes. We're, we're, we're uh, over an hour, but I do want to do Davos Watch. So if we have that bumper music. Let's get that going, if you would, good sir.
All right, welcome to episode 11 of Davos Watch, where we keep an eye on the global elites from Davos to the UN and other advocates of global fascism and totalitarian technocracy. This week, I want to preview the upcoming Davos 2024 conference of it. The conference begins officially on Monday, January 15th. The conference will bring together more than 2,800 leaders from 120 countries. The conference will feature more than 200 sessions, most of which will be live-streamed for your viewing pleasure. The World Economic Forum seeks to bring leaders of the world together in an attempt to, quote-unquote, advance dialogue, strengthen cooperation, and deepen partnerships on critical global challenges. Notable attendees this year will include the President of France, Emmanuel Macron, President of the Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, the head of states from Spain, South Korea, Greece, Ireland, just a whole bunch of other places. There's going to be a head of state from the Republic of China is going to be there. Uh, Anthony Blinken's going to be there. The the Stooges themselves, Al Gore and John Kerry, will be there. Basically, anybody who is anybody is going to be at Davos 2024. This year's conference has a main theme of rebuilding trust. According to the World Economic Forum press release, quote, the program embodies a back-to-basics spirit of open and constructive dialogue between leaders of government, business, and civil society. I can't help but think that we played a role in the deterioration of the trust from the general public when it comes to the World Economic Forum and their relationships with massive corporations and governments around the world. So rebuilding trust is the overarching theme for the conference, but the program itself is also divided into four subcategory themes. The first one, achieving security and cooperation in a fractured world. The second, creating growth and jobs for a new era. The third, in uh, artificial intelligence as a driving force for the economy and society and for a long-term strategy for climate, nature, and energy. So here are some of the panels that I am going to be looking forward to when Davos starts on Monday. The business case for EU enlargement is the name of one session. The description reads, nearly 20 years after the European Union's Big Bang enlargement in 2004, the bloc's long-stalled ambition to accept new members has experienced a striking revival. Beyond the moral and geopolitical arguments for the European Union's eastern expansion, is there also a business case to be made? Featured speaker of this session includes uh, the first deputy prime minister of the Ukraine. So expand the European Union, anybody? Maybe even include our new favorite ex-Soviet Union state? Maybe. You'll have to tune in to find out. Another panel that I'm looking forward to, Mapping Solutions for Extreme Weather, featuring Al Gore and Naomi Oreskes. I know that Jim is going to be chomping at the bit to watch this one. Uh, the description of this reads, Extreme weather events such as heat waves, floods, and droughts, sometimes in parallel, are raising awareness that collective action is vital to address the climate crisis. The session explores the impact of climate risks through time and maps of areas where international cooperation on climate and nature can be strengthened. It says the global situation space combines NASA time-lapse satellite imagery and geospatial and econometric data with predictive modeling. So we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of fear-mongering in this panel. 
Just can't wait for that one. Also, the special address by Li Kuang, Premier of the People's Republic of China. Li will be joined on stage by Klaus Schwab himself. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing Klaus Schwab kiss up to the Communist Party of China. That one is a can't-miss panel. We also have Transforming Energy Demand. It says, what can companies and governments do to enable economic growth with less energy? I'm not sure, but I bet it's going to come at the expense of your living standards. Make sure to tune into that panel to see what plans they have for your future. And also, are you tuning into Davos 2024 because you just can't get enough of U.S. climate czar John Kerry? Well, don't you worry because he's going to be leading four separate panel sessions during this week. The first movers for Frontier Clean Technologies panel, they discuss countries pouring more money into their renewable energy products. Another panel, COP28 and the road ahead, where John Kerry will take part in a discussion about the achievements and disappointments of the recent COP climate meetings. Uh, another panel that features John Kerry, Tripling Renewables, Make It Rapid and Responsible, where they'll discuss the goal of tripling global renewable energy in just the next six years. And my personal favorite, one that I definitely am going to be watching, is Decarbonizing Emerging Markets. And we're in this panel, they're going to be talking about emerging markets and how they need to grow by utilizing renewable energy energy because renewable energy is so good that it can power an emerging economy no i'm just kidding this panel is about how those emerging economies need six trillion dollars from taxpayers living in rich countries and if we just pour that six trillion dollars into these countries then we can achieve net zero by the year 2050 so there's fun for the whole family, whether you're interested in clean energy, climate change, gender pay disparity, artificial intelligence, or disinformation. Davos 2024 has something for you. We're hey, going to be covering this. Yes, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, we're going to be covering this uh, next week for sure. Uh, I think that the, uh, the socialism research team here at the Heartland Institute is going to be doing our best. 200 mm -hmm. sessions. I think if we had all of us working night and day, we wouldn't be able to watch all of those in a month. But we're going to do our best to kind of spread our resources and our bandwidth to watch as many of the panels as possible and bring you the highlights and takeaways uh, from Davos 2024. Chris, what are you going to say? Yeah, I think you overlooked what could be perhaps the best panel. Andy, could you just bring the the program up again real quick, please? Uh-oh. What's, what's the best okay. panel? It's actually the first day. San we're looking up santa claus here here we go okay <laughs> it's click on program right there on program right there yeah okay so on the yeah, okay here we go. the opening concert please read the description for that because it's just fascinating oh gosh what do we got here I just cannot wait for this. The opening concert transcends a traditional performance, transforming into an AI-driven immersive experience created by Rithik Anandal and is a vibrant testament to how art can awaken and mobilize our senses. Alluding to the deep interconnectivity of the distant ecosystems of the Sierra and the Amazon rainforest, the concert is performed by a specially formed group of world-class musicians, featuring a multi-award winning singer and activist, not going to pronounce that name, the French-Lebanese trumpeter, not going to pronounce that name, and the Brazilian singer, composer, and guitarist, Will Sant. Well, the my, yeah, my, this is my favorite part. Please, by all means, go ahead. 
the concert underscores the urgency of environmental action, delivering a resonant message that in the face of our planet's pressing challenges, the merging of art and advocacy has the power to inspire a collective response. I cannot wait. <laughs> Socialism. <laughs> there's nothing yeah. like a good uh trump a trumpet solo to get you thinking about saving the planet i right? just I, I didn't know that music like this could inspire a collectivist response to uh go and tackle well that's because you that's because you haven't heard a good trumpet solo <laughs> yeah the, the last oh. time a the last oh. time a brass instrument uh brought on a collectivist response was when uh uh bill clinton was on the was it the jay leno show arsenio hall Oh, no, that, that was a saxophone. It's still a brass yeah. instrument. I said brass instrument. No, it's All right, saxophone is technically a woodwind instrument. See this? Uh, see that drum head over there? I know a little it's thing. A woodwind about instrument that, made of made of brass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it's a woodwind instrument, please. I'll you guys it. are I'll so ignorant. Oh my god, oh, that's wow. just a, that's a bunch of hippie nonsense, though. I, I that sounds like a lot of fun. I mean. You know, you know, not even their art can just be art and entertaining. Even that has to inspire collectivism. It's like it's yeah. so oh tiresome. Do you remember that one? This is totally off topic, but do you remember the? Uh, uh, it was like uh, I think it was during the Olympics. It was like the opening ceremony of the Olympics that was taking place in London or something like that. And their entire presentation was like about the national health uh oh, yeah, whatever yeah. national yeah. institute of health or something like that it was like the creepiest like dystopian thing ever it was that was the weirdest thing i've probably ever seen in my life but maybe this concert will give that a run for its money justin how excited are you for uh for davos 2024 <clears throat> do any of those panels that i talked about uh pique your interest or is there any other ones that you have in mind uh, yeah, I mean, I think expanding the EU is a, is a big one, especially in light of uh, some of the stuff they're trying to do with ESG globally. I think that's a I think that's a really important one. I think this global misinformation, disinformation stuff. Mm. I have heard men. I've seen many, many things talking about how this needs to be done. Um, sometimes there's some kind of specific, but, but they're not super specific about it. So I'm really curious to know exactly what that framework looks like. Because it really sounds like what the World Economic Forum and uh, the United Nations and other international organizations want is some kind of global speech, you know, internet speech police um, that determines what is misinformation and what isn't. And so, you know, that's going to be a massive thing for sure. They're going to try to push that. So if we can get any insights on that, I think I think that's maybe one of the biggest takeaways from this could be could be that. Although the European Union one, I mean, that's. That's a big one. Hey, spoiler <laughs> yeah. alert. You know what they want to use to combat misinformation? AI. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. I'm sure there's whole panels AI on that. AI can there's... do everything, guys. It can there's... inspire even uh, you to get into collective a collectivist change. mindset. It I bet it can. <laughs> That's right. There's, there's, can. A, there's another panel that has to do with uh, uh, like getting into the metaverse or something like that. That's one that I'll definitely tune into. A generative AI panel that I'll definitely be tuning into there's a couple of other ones that i put aside that i think are going to be important that i didn't think were as comical to discuss on this podcast but there is seriously like 
at least a, a couple of dozen that like I want to specifically either tune into or have Chris or Justin or Jack uh, tune into as well because I think that they're going to be a lot of interesting stuff. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we can get some of this together. I know it starts next week, um, so we'll probably have at least some coverage of it on next week's podcast. But uh, here, here's where I'll agree a little bit with more with Justin on the whole ESG, you know, BlackRock and Vanguard and all those um, in the control they have over um, the misinformation, disinformation thing. I mean, that's something I think we need to pay very, very close attention to, you know, um, Twitter X, since Elon Musk has taken over, is a much more free speech area. I mean, I, I consume it pretty regularly, regularly, and it's much different now than it used to be um, just uh, just two years ago, right? Because people can say what they want. People um, are not um, the, you know, the mainstream media. They were all going to leave. Remember Mastodon? I asked you this yesterday, Donnie. You know, Never all the journalists were going to go to Mastodon, <laughs> you know, some sort of Twitter alternative. Whatever happened to that? I don't think anybody even heard the word Mastodon after a week yeah. after they all supposedly left. They all came back to Twitter because they're all addicts and they all um, just like talk to each other and, and, and create a narrative. So they never left Twitter. But that's one of the few areas that is seems completely immune from the kind of control that these large um, uh, firms like BlackRock and Vanguard and, and the IMF and all these global banks uh, and the, w, the, the World Economic Forum is very serious about policing disinformation and misinformation, which by which they define anybody who disagrees with us. They are, they, what we have to realize is that these global elites are really a tiny, tiny, small minority. They have enormous power, as, as Klaus Schwab says, you know, he's got his little acolytes all over the place in all the free Western countries as prime ministers and other high levels in the cabinet, but they are very much a minority. They cannot survive free speech. They cannot survive pushback from the people that are, very much against all this collectivism stuff. And so we have to look very closely and carefully at the actions they take as they talk about battling misinformation and disinformation. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll probably only be able to talk about it on Twitter. Yep, it should be an interesting one. I, I what, what, You know, they, they talk about it. I was going through their website yesterday when I was preparing for this, and uh, they were talking about how this is like the conference for the world's stakeholders, right? It's like, where's my invite? I would totally go. I want to go to Davos. Klaus, invite me to Davos. I want to go. I want to experience it firsthand and see what it's really like. Maybe I'm painting a terrible image of it that's not reflective of reality. So let me go, Klaus. This is a message to you specifically. Invite me. I will go to Klaus. I will go to Davos, Switzerland and hang out with you. Maybe I'll come back. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, gentlemen, we're hour and 17 minutes into this podcast. Any last words, anything you want to get off your chest before we wrap it up? Yeah. Can you imagine the carbon footprint of, uh, the latest Davos meeting? It's just, it's, it's, it's going to be enormous, gigantic. Yes. How dare you? It's going to be like another volcano went off. Uh, but yes, thank you all for tuning into this week's episode of the In the Tank podcast. Join us every week for a new episode. Audio only listeners that are catching this probably on a Friday or later, leave a review for us on iTunes. It'd be greatly appreciated. Also, why don't you join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time where we are live streaming on Facebook and YouTube and Rumble and X. You can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in the chat. Maybe we'll show your comment on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. 
Also, if you would like, you could uh, support the show just by hitting the like button, subscribing if you haven't already, sharing this content, even leaving a comment under the video will help boost those algorithms that are all structured to keep content like this from being shown to more people. If you would like, you could follow us on X at In The Tank Pod, or you can send us your comments, suggestions, or questions to the show by emailing us at inthetankpodcast at gmail.com. Jim Lakely, where can the fine people find you? At Jay Lakely on Twitter slash X at Heartland Inst at that same platform and always visit heartland.org. Fantastic. Justin Haskins, same question. At Justin T. Haskins on X and also check out uh, stoppingsocialism.com. Fantastic. And Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? So I just joined Mastodon. Is that cool now? <laughs> <laughs> He just got his MySpace profile uh, going. Too. I just did. Yeah. Fantastic. Follow, hurts hat, man. follow Chris Delgo on MySpace and Mastodon. Yeah. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. He's a lion dog-faced pony soldier. He's a lion dog-faced pony soldier.